Hello and welcome to the album years. We're back again after another another delay. We have another fantastic year to do. Again, Tim, you've chosen this year, 1983. I have, yeah. And um, looking down the list, I mean, it is again another pretty phenomenal year, which kind of again gives credence to that idea that the 80s in many ways was uh, partly I guess because we were growing up in this we were kind of discovering music in this decade mm-hmm. it's another golden decade isn't it I know it gets sometimes it gets a bad rap sometimes <laughs> from people who who think the 70s was you know and nothing was ever as good after the 70s and I think we've kind of proved on the show already that that nothing could be further from the truth and, and this year is another great example of that isn't it I think it is and I think it's an interesting year this one because it's for me the first post post punk year that you know we've had from sort of 77 82 the influence of punk and post punk and i think in 83 things shift quite dramatically things change as far as i'm concerned yeah they get a bit more lush and a bit more produced and a bit and a bit more sort of luxurious in their sound don't they it was almost like shedding of the the kind of post punk diy aesthetic seems to be going on and you know there's a few records that kind of that kind of support that theory as we'll, as we'll come on to and uh, also, just to say up front, this is going to be another two-parter because we have a very, very long list of albums on this list here. So this is part one of 1983. Before we do this, Tim, do we have any readers' readers' letters this week? I know it's been a while, but... I, I had a meal out with our chum, Peter Hamill. The Ham. The Ham. He listened to the show. And what he said was this. He said, um, Van de Graaff Generator Vital, the album year's assessment. He said, Capital! Spot on. Did we, give it, spot did we, did we get it on. spot on with that one? It was a brilliant assessment, he thought. Of Does he like it? Does he like that album? Oh, he loves it, yeah. He thinks it's a fantastic testament to that band. And uh, we agree, obviously. And anyway, he said that we captured that album and the circumstances surrounding the album beautifully then we get to the future now and he said fly oh dear we got that one wrong did we he thought we got that completely wrong <laughs> yeah um he thought we got the diy aspect right he thought we got um elements of the the originality and how he was interacting with the post-punk scene right but he said it certainly wasn't him feeling older it was actually him accessing his inner punk, his inner dear, and never feeling more at home. Well, to be to be fair to us, the Pushing 30, the opening track, does kind of lend a bit of weight to our theory, doesn't it? I mean, uh, he said, I still can be in a dear, and that was the key line. Do it in the voice, Tim. Do it in the voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't do it in the voice. No, I overload the microphone. Well, it would be lovely to get Peter on, wouldn't it? To maybe, to maybe do an album years with us it sometime. It would, yeah. He also liked our Kevin Coyne assessment. And he added to that that he thought that part of um, Kevin's problem was that he was very envious of other success and, and always felt that he hadn't quite got his due and that sort of impacted on his music and his personality though he did say that he was a warm gifted and unique person well should we should we start there then because actually um you know as as always you've created the the sort of shortlist here and one of your categories is mad as a hatter and you've got a couple of favorites on here but you've mentioned album i don't know which is a kevin coin album uh, legless in manila so seamlessly using that as a link because you've already mentioned kevin mm-hmm. What can, we, what can we say about this album that I personally don't know? This is a very different Kevin Coyne album because he'd been with Virgin, he'd been with Cherry Red, and although there were often experimental detours, there were obvious patterns to the albums. So, for example, Politics, one of my favourite Kevin Coyne albums, is bizarre. This is 1982, the one that preceded it. Half of it is electro-pop on a halfpenny budget, with him screaming over it, and half of it is a beautiful singer-songwriter album. And um, obviously something happened in between, because in 83 he'd been, he'd been working with a number of jazz fusion musicians, I mean, something you wouldn't associate with Kevin Coyne, people like Steve Lamb, the bass player, and obviously Brian Godding, who was the guitarist on some of the previous recordings as well. And this album, Legnus and Manila, it's kind of improvised, but he's with a crack team of musicians. So what you have are these very elastic fusion players 
and Kevin Coyne ranting over the top of it. So on one level, it's more musical, but because these guys are incredibly gifted, it goes to places that a lot of Coyne's music doesn't go. And it really is telling that he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown because this is the last album he did for about three or four years. And he had a breakdown, ended up in Nuremberg in Germany and then working with a much more conventional pickup band in Germany who played a kind of blues pop rock and really reigned Kevin's madness in. So in some ways, this is one of the the last great statements of his um golden period okay well in in the mad as a hatter category we have got an album which i think is almost like an archetype for our podcast in that it's it's a crazy record that is absolutely stunningly beautiful and very touching and very emotional but most people won't be aware of it and that is the album by the artist called lewis called l'amour um this is, I mean, he's kind of become rediscovered. Uh, obviously, uh, somebody found one of his albums in the bargain bins once about 20 years ago, uh, an album that at the time sold nothing, uh, a private press, uh, a vanity project, if you like. And this this discovery led to a reissue of the album on the very, very fashionable hipster label Light in the Attic and was brought to a new generation of listeners, listeners including us, and this is a very, very strange, beautiful record, isn't it? I mean, it's made by someone who's clearly delusional. <laughs> mm. And I think they think they're making very accessible pop. And it's one of those times when when it goes horribly wrong, but in a fascinating way that produces something even more exquisite and even more interesting and even more unique. How would you describe the sound of Lewis to what somebody is- that had never heard it? Well, I'd say it's like an ethereal, narcotic Avalon by Roxy Music. If Avalon by Roxy Music had been loaded with drugs, because it's got yeah. that, it's got a, a sort of conventional pop structure. It has that fairy obsession with almost classic nineteen forties love song lyrics, and as you say, glamour. But and and, and the voice, the voice in a sense is. As if Ferry were on Mogadons for me. Well, it's it, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a parody of John Martin at, at his at his yeah. most kind of like undecipherable. A, a bit of Brian Ferry, um, and a sort of mumbling delivery. I mean, you can't. I, I can't say I've ever been able to pick out more than a couple of words, you know, from the actual <laughs> yeah. lyrics, just from listening. It, it's it's that deliberate thing which John Martin obviously did himself, where he's just using the words for the sound, uh, you know, yeah. the, the rhythms of, uh, of, of, you know, the sound of vowels and consonants without necessarily making any attempt to make the words... Uh, decipherable or audible and it's definitely got that hasn't it? it's almost a just, uh, um, yeah. but as you say it's the the production it's almost going for that kind of sweet uh, there's a little bit of Marvin Gaye sort of 80s work too mm-hmm. isn't there as well sort of soulful sweet synthesized pop but without anything you could describe as a chorus or or a hook but it's it's strangely affecting isn't it and strangely emotional in its own kind of unhinged way there's a vulnerable quality to it. And as with John Martin, there's a repetition. So Martin often had that, it's love, it's love, it's love falling, it's love. Very yeah. cliched words that he'd made fresh with that delivery. And Lewis certainly has that quality. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, as you say, maybe that kind of 80s Marvin Gaye sophistication. There's the Avalon suave textures but it isn't as direct or accessible as the artist that he clearly thinks he's influenced by. And obviously, you know, the story behind it is that he got lots of people involved from um, top photographers to top recording studios in Los Angeles, presented himself as having a white Learjet, always dressed in white, glamorous suits, And of course, he didn't have the money to pay anybody. So he produced these albums, manufactured them. And the people who were part of this process didn't get paid, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's a and he did it again two years later, from what I can gather. You know, it's an extraordinary story. And and the albums, obviously, the very few albums he did press ended up in cutout bins, bargain bins. And people just happened upon them randomly over the next 10, 20, 30 years until... 
until they were rediscovered. I mean, I love stories like that. I, you know, the, the, there are a few stories like that over the over the years, aren't they? And you know, Linda Pearhacks being another great example. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what's funny about this album, fun, funny, fascinating about this album, is it's obviously trying to be in in the way that Marvin Gaye or, or Roxy Music's Avalon is sexy, seductive, and romantic. But it's also you also can't help thinking that if you did put this on for a girl on a first date. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, she'd run screaming for the door and never want to see you again. This is what went wrong with our first dates. And probably early no man as well, you know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's one of those noble failures that tries to be something and ends up being something else altogether. But it's still absolutely an A-list record. I mean, it's not in the shadow of anything else in a way, is it? All, for all the things that we've kind of compared to, compared it to, it is completely outside on outside on its own. It is outside of music in that respect. Completely unique. You'll n- never hear anything else quite like it. Yeah, the, the lack of focus, in a sense, becomes the focus. That it is almost all background. It is all delirium. It's all wash in the name, supposedly, of sensuous direct pop songs. And yeah, I, th- I think it fails so superbly at what it wants to be. <laughs> it's, um, it is a classic in its own right. and Because there's, there's, a, there's a sort of Eno texture to it as well. And again, I'm not sure whether this is deliberate, whether it's in his vocabulary. I'm and, and kind of Chet Baker as well, I sort of hear that intimacy as well. And, and Chet Baker, I think, was kind of accidental. You know, he was almost an accidental crooner in a sense, as he wasn't the most natural singers, but had a beautiful voice. And again, he had that kind of narcotic, dreamy quality. Uh, as did, uh, could say the same thing of Eno, couldn't you? Not a natural yeah, singer. Yeah, yeah. But, but had a very unique and, and beautiful voice in its own way. The Robert Wyatt thing, I guess, in that respect. Yeah. 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 So here's an album that you you um, have always raved to me about. And to my shame, I've never really listened to it until earlier today on YouTube. <laughs> and I have to say, I have to say, I admire it, but I don't like it very much, uh, which is the self-titled album by, uh, and I believe the only album, by a group called Pictures uh, from, from this year, 1983. Now, again, I don't know anything about this. Um, it is mad. So you're absolutely right to put it in the mad as a hatter category. It isn't like anything else I've heard, except possibly I've, I picked up little bits of maybe artists like The Residents mm-hmm. in there. Tell us about this album, Tim. This is one, am I right in saying this is actually one of your favourite Desert Island Disc albums, pictures? It isn't. I mean, like you, I admire oh. it more than I love it, but I've been fascinated by it, really. And um, it's one of these albums I got. There was a record shop in Warrington, and it was above a carpet shop. And it had these racks of ECM and EG editions records for about 50p. And so this is how I discovered a lot of ECM artists, you know, Ralph Towner, Steve Elliotson, Ian Garbrack, etc. And a lot of the more obscure EG editions artists. And this I was drawn to by its quite peculiar, almost kind of gothic Victorian cover. And the story relating to it is even more peculiar than the cover and the music in a way. But there was this band in the 80s, who I'm sure you remember, late 70s, early 80s, called Freeze, who then morphed into Southern Freeze. And they had a couple of enormous global hits. It was kind of light jazz, dance, funk. It was good for what it was. IOU was one of their big hits, as was Southern Freeze. And this album came about when Andy Stennett, the keyboard player, couldn't work the Oberheim in the studio. He was bamboozled by it. So he took it home and he wrote a suite of pieces. And his core influences, he said, were, I think it was Philip Glass, Keith Jarrett and Yes, Close to the Edge, which again isn't very Southern Freeze. He then presented these demos to John Rocker, the singer, who then wrote the album, which was a kind of concept album. It was a little like um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, the James Joyce novel, in that it takes somebody from childhood to adulthood and how they've been programmed and abused by society. So it's an unusual concept for these guys to work on. And yeah, I, I think it's it's almost impossible to sort of hear references. There might be the occasional Eno texture or even a kind of Tangerine Dream sequence or repetition. Um, there's a bizarre element of strangulated R&B vocals from Rocker 
occasionally. Um, a lot of spoken word, and as you've said, quite a number of experimental vocal offshoots which have a resonance quality. So it's just an extraordinary album for a very from a very unlikely source. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I, I don't think I've ever heard anything like it, but I can see why it would have failed. I mean, it, I can't imagine anyone actually, uh, you know, rushing out to buy such a peculiar little misfit of a record. And, it, and I think it came out on EG, didn't it? Is, is that right? Is it came out on... So, I mean, that's part of the reason why I bought it. It was... Um, I was drawn to the sort of the the almost grotesque cover, which was uh, painted by John Rocker's brother, and was was very evocative and and also you know tremendously descriptive of the music. And I think they kind of felt the music was a bit like audio painting; that that was what they had in mind. You know, on one level, it's such an art project; you almost feel as it it could be a joke. But they were very very serious and certainly put an awful lot of themselves into this. And occasionally you can hear how great an R&B vocalist John Rocker is. But, you know, it's an extraordinary album that I think is is well worth hearing. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by it. I didn't like it very much, but it, but I was, I was definitely appreciating the, you know, the uniqueness of it. OK, let's move on. Let's move on to ambience. You've shoehorned him into two of these discussions already, Tim. So let's get him out of the way. Um, he did make... Arguably one of his greatest records this year, Brian Eno, uh, with his brother and, and Daniel Lenoir. Apollo atmospheres and soundtracks, possibly the Eno album I come back to more than any other along, and maybe along with Ambient One. It's just sublime ambient music, isn't it, from from a guy that, that um, obviously has become, uh, you know, so synonymous with the whole concept of ambient music and indeed almost created the the word you know kind of coined the phrase ambient music in the first place but i think one thing that's always forgotten with eno and, and i'm sure you'll concur with this is this idea that ambient music partly through his own conceptualizing of the whole idea is that it's background music and i've never felt an album like apollo was background music it's completely enveloping completely engaging and, and completely involving absolutely adore this record tim this this is like a a desert island disco i'm sure for both of us isn't it yeah, well, I think this is, yeah, he's made an awful lot of ambient albums. Some of them blur into one, but this was very distinct almost immediately. It was a soundtrack to a film about Apollo landings. And I think he described it at the time as being a kind of ambient country. So it does have this kind of atmospheric country and Western flavour. Pedal steel guitar. Pedal steel yeah, guitar, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's immediately distinguished from a lot of his albums. And yeah, as you say, it's it's an all-enveloping experience. This isn't something you necessarily put in the background. And uh, Great melodies too. Great. And there's some beautiful melodies on this ring. And I'm always returning, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I was about to say, always uh, returning is possibly one of my favourite pieces of all Gorgeous melodies. Which, again, belie this idea that ambient music is just texture. Uh, and to be fair, I'm not even sure he, he himself places this in his, in his ambient canon. I mean, it's not, it hasn't got the ambient subtitle or prefix as far as I, as far as I remember. Mm. So not, maybe he's not necessarily saying it's, this is ambient music himself, but I think a lot of people think of it as part of Eno's ambient work. And it's certainly focused on texture, but it's also got what you might call great songs, great, not vocal songs, but just in terms of its melodic content, there are great hooks. And, you know, no coincidence, it's one of the albums of his that's been used time and time and time again in TV shows and, and, and movies. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And I, weirdly enough, I remember this because thinking once more about record shops and where you could buy music and come across it accidentally. And I remember buying this in the M6 Cash and Carry, which was off a motorway in the northwest. And bizarrely, the M6 Cash and Carry, which mainly sold cheap food for shops, had this and a Psychic TV album. And I remember buying wow. both of them, you know, partly because what the hell are they doing, the M6 Cash and Carry? And that's how I came across it. So let's move on then. Now, this is another of our absolute favourites. No, no, no surprise because we're both big fans of the whole, you know, kind of notion of ambient music and textural music. But this is another album that kind of only very loosely fits into that definition. And you introduced me to this album very soon after we met, and it very quickly became one of my all-time favourites too. Virginia Astley from Gardens Where We Feel Secure, the definitive school piano album. <laughs> but what an evocative record. I mean, such a, such so simple in concept, just to try and 
chart the cycle of a day, but not just any day, a kind of idyllic, dreamlike summer day. So it feels very British as well, doesn't it? All the sound effects yeah. of, you know, church bells and the creak of swings and the birds. And it, it, I've never heard an album that so perfectly captures that dreamy, idyllic feeling of summers that seem like they're going to go on forever when you're when you're a kid you know and she perfectly captures that and it's quite low final as i say i mentioned the school piano and you and i have yeah. always had this sort of love of not not the sort of beautifully recorded grand piano steinway but that very intimate sound of an upright piano recorded on a single mono microphone what's your take on this album too? so so yeah so for me it, it's kind of it's a very intimate album as you say it's a very british album it sort of evokes betjamin and, and the title comes from an Auden poem i believe and i sort of always saw it as being the the daydreams the reveries if you like almost of um, a primary school teacher who's just at the piano and the piano is reflecting the thoughts and the dreams of that teacher and that day that's going by very very gently um and occasionally you've got as well as the school piano you've got voices or her creating again a sort of school choir effect and also there are little bits of flute that she'll play as well but it has this incredible fragile innocence there's no sort of jazz extempore you know this is all very tentative yeah it's 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 the least funky album you could possibly imagine isn't it <laughs> yeah a, i mean i think also that you know the sound design is such a strong part of it and everything seems to be happening slightly in the distance you know doesn't yes. it? so the church bells children playing all of these things they're almost kind of coming through for, through the ether almost like memories nostalgic memories but very yeah. fond nostalgic memories through this layer of of uh, of time that's having passed, you know. It, it didn't sound like it was an album that she sweated over in the studio. Mm. It sounds so effortless um, and, and natural and, and underproduced. It doesn't sound like it was produced at all. It literally feels like it just sort of flowed out onto the tape. I'm sure it was very considered um, and very carefully thought out. But it's an album that just has that glow about it, that sort of intimate natural glow to it doesn't it well it sort of has a diy classical feel as well and one of the things i've always felt about the album is that it could have been made in the 1920s the 1930s the 1940s there's a certain weird timelessness yeah it's com it's completely uh out of time isn't it in that sense it, it is an anachronism in the best possible sense of the word like like a lot of albums i think we've talked about on here i mean you know again without wishing to invoke one of the holy trinity that the kind of hollis thing you yeah. know of make of making albums which almost sound like they could have been recorded in a jazz studio in 1940 yeah um in the sense that they have nothing about them which ties them to the time that they're being made in and i think that's the hallmark of a lot of the albums that you and yeah. I come back to. I mean, this could have been an outsider composer who'd been discovered in the 40s and recorded in that school. You know, there's an aspect of that. And, and I love the fact at the time when she was interviewed for the album, she was talked about her influences and she just mentioned Motorhead, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> Now, I wonder if this album will, will be in the running for our, our pick of the bunch when it comes to the end of 1983. I suspect it will definitely be in the run, in the mix there because um, we both love it so much. But let's talking about albums that are completely out of time, let's talk about albums that are completely of their Ooh. time. And um, the next category you've got on the list is progressive titans. And <laughs> I think it's fair to say the 80s was not the easiest time for for the the so-called progressive titans that come through the through the 70s and even through the late 60s um but some rode the storm better than others and you know we've talked about this before um on your list you have genesis self-titled which I, I i don't know this album at all i do know the single from the album mama which is brilliant yeah I, yeah you know, fantastic single one record of course i do know very well and another band that rode the storm moving from sort of 70s progressive tropes into into the 80s is yeah and again, one of the greatest singles of the whole eighties, you'd have to admit, mm. is "Owner of uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart," um, and the album it came from nine oh one two five. Now, I did listen to this again at the time; it was an incredible reinvention, wasn't it? Um, to, to you know, of a band that should have been uh, kind of yeah. washed up and written off. 
But no, they came back with their biggest hit single of of all time and a completely fresh take on a, I'm not sure if you can call it progressive rock, but certainly a, a very intelligent form of modern pop with the help of the two Trevors, uh, Trevor Horn and Trevor... Right. It, it, mm-hmm. it has dated. I think it has yeah. dated a bit. I, I, just, I did listen to it recently. It does sound very much of its time. Um, I don't think it's, for example, um, dated as well as, say, the Propaganda album, A Secret Wish, which for me would be a much better and more timeless example of kind of progressive pop hybrid from from the kind of ZTT school. But it still represents an incredible reinvention. And I suppose it kind of gave, yeah. yes, you know, uh, at least another at least another 10 years, are kind of at the top of their game, didn't it? It did, and it was a very brave statement, really. I mean, completely unlike anything they'd done before. And I always remember in the Bill Bruford autobiography, he'd said that what he admired about Yes during that time was that they were prepared to almost give themselves to people like Trevor Rabin, Trevor Horn. And he felt that although King Crimson had been progressing during that period, that they were so bloody-minded, they would have never allowed a producer to dictate their direction, but he felt that Yes had done it in a fairly creative way that in a sense they they knew that they didn't quite have the skills to navigate the early 80s, but they found wonderful people to actually do that with. And um, yeah, you know, as an album, I don't think it's as strong as a single. The same with the Genesis um, album as well. I think, you know, Mama is certainly the standout. There were a couple of other decent tracks as well. But what is kind of interesting, if you think of Genesis by Genesis, you think of 90125, and to an extent the Mike Oldfield album Crises, suddenly you've got a lot of the progressive bands embracing new wave values. You know, you've got brevity, you've got bite, you've got very contemporary cutting-edge production values. And of course, they could afford the fair lights and the big studios. And then what you're getting in the post-punk world, if you're thinking about the This Mortal Coil that's emerging, Eyeless and Gaza, um, they're actually reaching out almost in a progressive way. So the new wave post-punk artists are becoming more flamboyantly out there and experimental while the progressive bands of old are actually reining themselves in almost as if they feel that they have to uh, kind of meet the times head on. Well, and you can look forward, folks, to a whole box set on which I explore that very (laughs) concept that Tim's just outlined because I have put together this box set called Intrigue, which is coming out soon, which is kind of exactly what you're talking about, how a lot of the post-punk music became just as ambitious, just as pretentious in the best possible sure. sense of the word and just as just as reaching as a lot of the the so-called progressive music of the early 70s had been and and i and i've always believed that and i've always believed that the 80s in many respects was just as creative uh and just as ambitious as the decade before and um another i mean you, you mentioned the mike oldfield and of course the other thing that the mike oldfield album crisis again has in common with 90125 and the genesis self-titled album is an absolutely brilliant single, Moonlight Shadow. I mean, arguably, again, the rest of the album doesn't quite match up to the brilliance of the single. But in the, in the same way that Owner of a Lonely Heart and potentially Mama um, make you think the albums maybe are a bit stronger than they actually are mm. because they, they did kind of restart and kickstart the careers of these so-called uh, old, you know, old farts who were still at this time... Again, it's worth pointing out, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. still only in their early 30s at the most, you know. Yeah, some of them even younger, you know. So uh, here's another example, but in a, in, a, in a completely different way, you know, and we talk about albums that seem out of time and pay no kind of heed to what's going on in, the, in you know, in the rest of the music industry and just do their own thing. Uh, do their own thing. Pink Floyd's The Final Cut. Mm-hmm. I love this record. I mean, okay, I am a Pink Floyd apologist anyway, but sometimes I see people very dismissive of this record, almost as if it's some kind of aberration that should be overlooked. And yet mm. I think it's one of the most beautiful and cohesive records the band ever made. Sure, it is essentially an album that is so dominated by Roger Waters that it's difficult to think of it as anything other than a kind of a Roger Waters folly in that sense. But there are, at the same time, there are some of David Gilmour's most beautifully crafted guitar solos 
on this record. And whenever whenever he appears on the record, he completely, you know, makes his mark. So it isn't just a Roger Waters folly. I just think this album is almost to be listened to as kind of almost a symphonic tone poem, as a, as a complete whole. The idea of individual songs becomes almost irrelevant. And I know, again, that's something you can say about earlier Floyd mm-hmm. records, but particularly here, it is, it is almost like a sweet... I just adore this record, Tim. What's your feeling on this record? Yeah, I've always thought it's one of the strongest. Um, I've, again, been a great apologist for this album. And strangely enough, I see a kind of connection with the Virginia Astin. There's a lot of found sound. There's a lot of fragile piano. There's there's a journey that this album goes on. And I always kind of felt that it was underrated because it was a Pink Floyd album. You know, I like you, I think Gilmore, when he makes his presence known is utterly devastating. And so I think it has more of a Pink Floyd band identity than the Roger Waters solo albums that followed. And it has more of a sense of cohesion because even when Gilmore isn't playing, there's a lushness to the production. And I kind of feel that it's always been dismissed because it's Pink Floyd. I think if this had been a Bob Dylan album or a Leonard Cohen album, because it certainly shares some of that gravelly singer-songwriter intensity and intimacy that you hear in in the best Cohen and the best Dylan, I think it would be seen as their tour de force. But perhaps for a Pink Floyd album, it maybe comes across as too intimate, too ragged, too personal. I'm not sure because I, I've never really seen many of the problems that other people have with it. Well, I think it takes the more intimate aspects of the wall and kind of fashions them into a whole continuum, a a whole kind of vibe, a whole kind of piece. The the use of the brass band, the kind of Salvation Army that you hear on sort of outside the wall. It, It couldn't be further away from Wish You Were Here, could it? I mean, I suppose that's the problem. If people think of Pink Floyd as, you know, the archetype of Pink Floyd of Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. This is a long way from that, isn't it? It's not got the lushness and the radio friendly, kind of FM radio friendly sheen of things like money or comfortably numb or shine on you crazy diamond. Maybe people have an issue with that. It's just not what they want from Pink Floyd. But then I've always loved bands that confront expectations of, of their audience, you know, and I think Floyd were a band that continued to reinvent themselves. Um, and here's a great testament to that. Paranoid Eyes is one of my favourite Pink Floyd tracks of yeah. all time. I've never heard anyone else talk about that song. No, I, totally. One of the most touching lyrics as well. I think this is the thing that, for me, I think it features some of Roger Waters' most personal, most beautifully rendered lyrics. Um, and that, yeah, Paranoid Eyes, fantastic piece. Gunner's Dream also is wonderful. <laughs> So let's move on from from the so-called progressive titans to this is also the year of neo-prog music, neo-progressive music, because this is the year that Marillion uh, and IQ, arguably the two most successful exponents from that that whole kind of movement, um, released their, their debut records. And uh, Marillion, obviously, to, to great fanfare and, and to great success. IQ mm-hmm. less so, but certainly the beginning of a... Of, of a career that continues to this day. And we talked about neo-progressive music, I think, before, that there's something quite unique about it in the sense that it obviously is very derivative. It's obviously drawing from a lot of tropes that were laid down, particularly by Genesis and, mm-hmm. and Camel and those kind of bands. But there is a kind of DIY aesthetic and yeah. a kind of non-schooled musicianship that gave it something else that the original wave of of progressive bands hadn't had and made it almost like our punk music. The people like I who loved progressive rock music were looking for something that would be, you know, contemporary to me. And I was able to go and see all these bands in pubs and clubs, as I'm sure you were. Mm -hmm. Famously, I saw Marillion's first ever show at the age of 12 (laughs) without, you know, completely randomly had gone to see a band called the Chilton Volcanoes, who were a punk group. And it turned out they were opening for this band that everyone told me were called Marilyn. And it turned out to be Marilyn. So famously, I, I have this, this kind of connection with this with this, this music and this genre. But these albums, I mean, Script for Jester's Tear still sounds like a bit of a classic to me in its own way. 
Um, it isn't as slick or as, as as musical as the original wave, but it, in doing so, we talked about this with the Lewis thing, it kind of achieves something else almost despite itself, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I think that, you know, like the new wave of British heavy metal had something of the raw punk yes. DIY. Yeah. You know, I've always felt that Iron Maiden's debut, in, in a sense, you can put that in with the punk movement, although they're drawing from classic rock and classic hard rock influences. There's an energy and a raggedness that comes through on that. And I think you hear that on Script for Justice Tear. And of course, that's what makes it an early 80s album. It's interesting that at the time it was seen for its rips from Genesis or its rips from Camel or rips from Pink Floyd. But when you listen to it, there's a kind of an enthusiasm and a passion and a very lyric, a very different lyrical slant as well. Because of course, if you think of Fish, whose voice is more unschooled than some of the traditional progressive singers he's actually quite a direct passionate personal lyricist and vocalist it communicates in a way that foxtrot doesn't and i think that a lot of people kind of forget that that's perhaps what then distinguishes it it isn't a rip-off because they've done something very different with it and partly it's because they they aren't drawing from the same pool. You know, I love that underground of the 60s and 70s where they were drawing from classical folk, jazz, psychedelia, liberally. These are drawing from certain, as we've noted before, certain Genesis tropes, but they're doing something very different that's partly determined by the era they're recording it in. Um, and I think they've got a very different sort of audience as well. Yeah, I mean, the lyrical subject matter, you can't imagine, apart from Roger Waters, possibly, you can't imagine, or maybe Hamill, you can't imagine many of the classical progressive bands sort of dealing with the, the kind of subject matter in such a kind of visceral way that he is. I mean, OK, it's it's very wordy, mm. but it's also quite, some of the lyrical imagery is quite brutal. Um, and his, his, his presence was also, I mean, I used to go and see them a lot in the early days when they used to play around Aylesbury and Hemel Hempstead where I grew up. His presence was also quite confrontational. He was mm. quite scary as a front man. Um, in a way, I can't imagine John Anderson being, you know. No. Um, yeah, genuinely quite terrifying. And when he was delivering songs like Forgotten Sons and, and you know, and He Knows You Know and those kind of songs. So it was almost, again, almost despite themselves. I think they were they were setting out to do something that they felt was quite traditional. Mm. But despite themselves, they ended up doing something which did have as much in common, as you say, with you know with a kind of confrontational punk aesthetic and i still think it, it I, I still think it holds up uh, as a record i think it's a great one of the great debut albums actually well i think it's one of those albums that actually gets slightly better with age and also when you're detached from it you can hear what the 1980s is in it you know the use of technology as well some of these sort of brass stabs on the keyboards and kind of lyrically and vocally in some ways fish is almost like if I can say this, the grandiloquent flip side of Morrissey, because it is bedroom memoir, bedroom misery. Yes, um, very much. It's yeah. personal relationships being ripped apart. And whereas Morrissey had perhaps that kind of northern kitchen sink, slightly sarcastic eye, um, Fish was coming more from a sort of Hamill level of intensity and confrontation, but equally, as we said, something that kind of sits quite comfortably with um, some of the more brutal post-punk artists of the time. You know, even the tonality of his voice is as much Howard Devoto as it is Gabriel. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and, and you know, and if you actually talk to Fish and you, you realise what he was listening to and what he was growing up listening to, it was quite, a you know, an eclectic. I think he was as much influenced by people like Roger Dolter and Pete Townsend as he was by, you know, by by the Genesis kind of... Yeah, uh, yes well, Alex Harvey you can hear. Alex that, Harvey, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you definitely can hear that. Very confrontational, almost like, you know, um, someone who's grown up having to really fight for themselves, literally, physically mm. and mentally defend and fight for themselves yeah right let's go on to um, a category you've called old dogs new tricks which includes some people that have been around since the 60s essentially trying to embrace again another theme that we come back to time and time again don't we these artists trying to embrace the zeitgeist and of course king of this the poster the poster child for for reinventing yourself bowie managed to do it this year in arguably certainly in commercial terms, 
the most successful way he ever did. It's interesting because I've just seen the Moon Age Daydream movie and you do kind of appreciate that this was in many ways just another part of his master plan, wasn't it? It was almost like David Bowie decided one day he he was... You know, he was fed up with being the sort of art house underachiever commercially. He wanted to be the biggest pop star in the world. And mm. lo and behold, he goes and does it. Yeah. Almost as if it was just a matter of him flicking a switch and deciding to do it. Which is incredible, really, you know. But here he is, Let's Dance, a massive record. Is it good, Tim? Is it a good record? I think it's a good record. I mean, the thing is, it's disappointing in the sense that Everything Bowie had done up to this point had an edge and was certainly more experimental. But as a contemporary 1980s pop album, it's quite masterful, you know, in a way that the following years, Tonight was not. Tonight had a couple of good tracks, but but overall it was as if he was barely there. And I think that Never Let Me Down was was similar. And those two albums were more disappointing in the sense that he was trying to embrace what was out there and he was failing quite badly and, and I think to a certain extent that also was was in the Tim Machine albums not that they're terrible records but they're not the Pixies you know for the first time ever on the albums after this he's not what he's trying to be whereas Let's Dance it was as you say it's almost like he flicked a switch like I want to be the world's biggest pop star he becomes the world's biggest pop star with a strong album you know the title track is is wonderful. There's other great tracks, mm. Ricochet, China Girl. It's it's a good album. You know, the the complaints would be that it's a little too straight and a little too clean, but his voice is still amazing. There's a scope. Um, and there's a tremendous detail in the production as well. I think Nile Rogers does a great job and brings that kind mm. of mm. chic production house style to this. Um, while Scary Monsters remains one of my favourite albums of all time and Let's Dance will never hit that for me, I think what's interesting about it is that he picks a target and he hits it. And in this case, it is contemporary pop music and he does it with style, panache and quality. Yeah, I agree. I love the fact that he made the record and I love the fact that he pulled it off, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, like 90125. And interestingly enough, those two albums became the biggest that either artist had done for quite yeah. a long time afterwards. But probably not the albums that you would go back to, uh, you know. So in that sense, they were more of their time. They they achieved, they captured the zeitgeist. They were very successful. But actually, when you look at the catalogue in retrospect, they seem slightly lesser, don't they, in terms yeah. of, you know, the, the, the creativity. So we also have uh, Old Dog's New Tricks, Herbie Hancock's Future Shock, uh, has that got rockets on it? It has, yeah. Which is what I think is one of the great, great, as you say, for a jazz, uh, a jazz musician to produce such an extraordinary piece of electro pop is a, is a fantastic uh, Bowie-like piece of, mm. of reinvention. Um, likewise, New Order, Power and Corruption and Lies. For me, um, New Order were always about singles. Um, I've I've never really warmed to their albums. Obviously, they had that thing where they never put their singles on their albums anyway, at least yeah. not until later on with, you know, with albums like Low Life. But they're still at that stage where they're not putting singles on the album. So arguably one of the greatest singles made by anyone at any time, Blue Monday, is not on mm-hmm. Power, Corruption and Lies, even though it comes uh, from the album Sessions. So it's hard to kind of think of those two apart. But yeah, I mean, Blue Monday, obviously one of the one of the greatest uh, for a band that that had only a couple of years before been reeling in the aftermath of the death of their singer as a kind of northern miserablest kind of indie alternative post-punk band to creating one of the definitive dance tracks, if not the definitive dance track, uh, you know, of the whole era. Uh, that, as you say, is an incredible... It's interesting in that it's kind of simultaneously quite morose while being very uplifting. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like they've kept everything that you think of as being, you know, part of the, the Joy Division new, new Order sound. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a hard trick to pull off. There's no sense of compromise, is there? No, not at all. And, and, and this album very much is, in a sense, the accompaniment to Blue Monday. It has a similar kind of electro club influence in some of the rhythms and synth sounds and so on. And, and I wonder as well, you know, talking about Herbie Hancock, I think MTV played a great role in hits and perhaps you know this is one of the reasons as well why bands like Genesis and 9025 not only were they great reinventions of the bands they had quite striking videos that got played on MTV so this became 
quite important in bands reaching fresh audiences, audiences who possibly didn't even know who these bands were before. And Blue Monday would have been another example of that. But with Herbie Hancock's Rocket, if you remember, the video was done by um, one of our favourites, Godly Cream. Cream. So let's move on. You, you've also um, mentioned here Tom Waits, Swordfish Trombones. Also, uh, I think we both agree, one of our favourite albums of the whole period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this was a surprise reinvention because he's gone from being what he was through most of the 70s, essentially a barroom piano balladeer, albeit, you know, with a few quirks on, on the albums just prior to this, like Blue Valentine's, mm-hmm. but essentially still very much in that kind of troubadour vein to being something much, much stranger hasn't he? Almost overnight with this record. Sort of yeah. the, the, the use of sort of junkyard percussion, that kind of Harry Parch-like mm. use of found homemade instrumentation and a much more uncom- uncompromising kind of approach to songwriting. What happened here? What happened? I mean, we, you know, we love this record, but, but what happened? It, it seemed like it just came from nowhere, didn't it? Very much so. I mean, I wonder if it was the transition to Island Records, because Island Records always had that reputation for being slightly more... um, Giving their artists more creative freedom. Exactly. You know, they had a roster of very groundbreaking artists, and in the early 80s they were certainly one of the most important labels. So I wondered if it was a, a label transition and Chris Blackwell allowing Waits to be what he wanted to be because you know he had done Blue Valentine 78 but he'd also done a couple of fairly middle of the road um, albums in between that and this including I think it was one from the heart a film soundtrack yeah and Heart Attack Heart Attack and Vine Heart Attack and Vine and this was a tremendous breakthrough and I think he said that he'd been listening to Captain Beefheart and you can partly hear that I mean you can hear in some of the ballads that cracked early Randy Newman quality you can hear in some of the clattering junkyard rhythms Captain Beefheart and also the eccentricities but he certainly makes it all his own and um, as you say I think it's that Harry Parch use of unusual homemade instruments that gives it quite a unique tonality throughout but also he's letting his voice I mean you could you could easily have put this album couldn't you in the mad as a hatter category too yeah, yeah. he's re- he's really letting his voice to go beyond I mean he's always had a little bit of that but here it's almost to the point of absurdity almost a caricature of itself but I, I love it you know and you know you mentioned Captain Beefheart I must say I always felt the title Swordfish Trombones must be an homage to the title Trout Mask Replica yeah. and of course Trout Mask Replica being his most infamous uh, an uncompromising record. It seems no coincidence to me that Tom Waits would call this album Swordfish Trombone. It seems like a very deliberate nod to me. And, and it's an interesting album in the sense that, you know, he, to a certain extent, was almost Hollywood royalty. You know, he knew a lot of famous film directors. His wife was a screenwriter. And yet there's a real dirty street quality about this music. But also some, you know, some incredibly beautiful tender moments too, isn't it? Johnsburg, Illinois. Yeah, Johnsburg, Illinois. I mean, just absolutely devastatingly beautiful little moments of of tenderness that perhaps do kind of, you know, connect back to his earlier records, except not. Mm. They seem more intimate, more stripped back, more tender. Perhaps it's no coincidence that Ireland was a, you know, was a British label. Mm. He suddenly found himself on a British label, having been on an American label for most of the previous 10 years. And it, it does have a slightly more European sensibility. I was going to say, it is, it's this sound design. You know, you've got quite a lot of dissonant guitar. You've got, as we said, this almost kind of trash can drumming. But what then works is on pieces like Rainbirds, you have tuned glass and it's yeah. exquisite. Yeah, he's definitely looking for he's definitely looking for a new musical vocabulary on this record, isn't he? Very much and so. Trying, yeah. you know, literally tr- tr- trying anything. You know, again, it's that Harry Parch thing which we mentioned, trying to make homemade things music in, into musical instruments and and completely pulling it off. But what's interesting about it is that you know this represents a dramatic departure from an artist who has had a relatively conventional career with albums logically following from one another for about 11 years this then defines the rest of his career 
But that's interesting, isn't it? Because this is an example of an artist becoming more experimental and in doing so, having a commercial breakthrough. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it doesn't happen very often, does it? But, it, you know, I think, I think it's fair to say that the earlier albums, beautiful though they are, I mean, I love some of the early Tom Waits. In fact, all of them, I love all of them. But he never really achieved that crossover, did he? Until he decides... I don't care anymore. I was going to say, you know, around this time, sort of 83, 84, 85, there were word of mouth albums. You know, Blue Nile, Walk Across the Rooftops was one of them. This was another that people were recommending to everybody. You've not heard anything like this. And I think that it kind of works because it has the anger, the strangeness. But when it all comes down to it, it'll have a piece like Johnsburg, Illinois, which is so painfully tender. And then mad things like Frank the Butcher. Yeah. Just this weird kind of queasy listening instrumental. But it all works because it's his personality is so strong that he can he can put these seemingly disparate elements together and create something completely cohesive and a brilliant album from beginning to end. Um, okay, Tim, I think we should wind up this half of 1983. Uh-huh. With uh, two two more categories that you that kind of um, lead on from one another, they're kind of interlocked. So you've got enter the stadium, yeah, and show me the way to the stadium. Okay, <laughs> so perhaps you'd like to explain the distinction first between those two categories: enter the stadium and show me the way to the stadium. Well, I think the thing is that eighty three in particular, it's when the new stadium rock that defines a lot of the eighties to come. Emerges, you know, you've got U2's War, you've got the Police Synchronicity, you've also got REM's debut, and they become major figures. And then you have bands who, in a sense, they're occupying a similar territory and, and maybe even influential on that territory, but never quite made that transition from the big concert halls to the huge stadiums in the States. And so I think that there was this big guitar music that suddenly became de rigueur during that period and once more it kind of comes out of post-punk but it's not got many of the qualities of post-punk so you know post-punk is interesting i I remember reading simon raymond he was in a band before cocktail twins and he said that post-punk he felt a little like psychedelia was one of those eras where anything went and there's an aspect of truth to that but actually by 82 there's a particular template, you know, there's that razor edge guitar, that particular metallic drum sound, that very heavy, sometimes flanged bass. There were lots of pointers to post-punk sounds. And I think what's interesting about 83 is all of that disappears. You know, even in a band like the Cocteau Twins, who released an album this year, their soundscape broadens tremendously. And with the stadium rock, it was almost as if that era had had its day. Something new, whether it be better or worse, was was replacing it. Yeah, it's certainly a music about big gestures, isn't it? So the drums become big, the reverbs become big, the guitar tones become big with lots of echo on, you know, like the classic, the quintessential edge sound with all the delay on it and all the reverb. And and the and the vocals are kind of reaching out to the back row of the stadium, aren't they? They're like, exactly. you know, yeah, you're going to hear, it's nothing intimate, you're going to hear me right at the back with this big rousing anthemic chorus um, and of course, Bono being a great exponent of that, you know, for better or worse, I'm 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 a fan of, of early U2 for sure. But the album that you've kind of highlighted that, that you think is the one that we should focus on the most, and it's certainly my favourite of of the U2 REM Police sort of axis this year, is the Police's swan song, Synchronicity, which I think yeah. is a fantastic record. And again, very distinct in their catalogue, but what a great way to go out, isn't it? It is, and it has a sound all of its own. I mean, one of the things that was nice about the Police is that most of the, you know, the first two albums, to an extent, are very logically uh, entwined. This album has its own very distinct sound, led very much by the guitar. I mean, this thing is, it's, it's a guitar band on this. I know there are synth textures and so on, but this is a guitar band and Summers does something very fresh with his instrument on this album. Yeah, this, the, the the sounds are beginning to be more processed, the bigger sounds, more use of delay and chorus and things like that. The the, the production certainly sounds expensive, 
Yeah. It sounds expensive. It sounds like they've recorded in the Bahamas or Monterey, expensive studio, and they've spent a lot of time refining the sounds and honing them, honing the music. You know, yeah. obviously, famously, everything, uh, every breath you take is is on this record. What, what, I think yeah. one of the great uh, dark love songs of all time. And and if you don't understand what what I mean when I say dark love songs, then you haven't read the lyrics properly. Uh, it's a very perverse, quote-unquote, love song. Um, but also tracks like Synchronicity 1 and 2, these are, def- as you say, these are definitely um, in the mould of stadium rock. Big, yeah. big songs with big anthemic choruses and big lyrical concerns, um, which we see reflected, as you say, throughout the rest of the decade. Not only in bands like you 2 and Arian, but also in the bands you've, you said didn't quite make it to the stadium, but bands like Echo and the Bunnymen and the chameleons are definitely reaching for something, the big music, to coin a Mike Scott uh, song title. Well, also vocally, you know, if you think about that era, 77 to 82, post-punk had its own very distinct clipped vocal vocabulary. And you can think of, again, you know, Howard Devoto, who, who I love his work, but he has that sound. It's arch, it's clipped. Suddenly when you're listening to Bono, you're listening to Sting in 83, They've got these brilliant, soulful voices. It's somewhere between soul, rock, jazz tonality sometimes, and they are picking people out of the 100,000 in the Mm. audience. They've got those big voices that can reach people. So there's a kind of a real expanse in terms of production, the singing. Um, It's all opened up. Yeah, I think you're right. It's interesting. There's a certain type of voice. You know, it's difficult to imagine how a devoto really you know, engaging more than the first few rows of the audience. Mm. Whereas, you you know, you think of the classic rock singers like Robert Plant, you know, he could sing, be singing in Madison Square Garden and he was reaching every single person in that in that big stadium. Yeah. And again, that's the difference between, say, someone like Sting or Michael Stipe or Bono and, well, Vinnie Riley, bless him. <laughs> Can't imagine, you know, his voice even reaching beyond the edge of the stage, let alone the back row of the stadium. Um, and there's definitely a tradition that's coming in with, uh, you know, with the new generation of singers, as you say, people like Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunnymen, or even someone like Wayne Hussey from the from the Mission, yeah, yeah. you know, who were kind of reaching for that stadium rock appeal, weren't they? And you're right, we do see the appeal of this. And I think a couple of years later, Live Aid is going to completely focus the rest of the decade on that kind of approach. Yeah. I mean, it's a return in some ways to the stadium rock values of The Who, Led Zeppelin and so on. Of course, bands that the likes of The Police would have been fans of, possibly even U2 as well. But it's that stadium vocabulary done differently because there is very much a kind of 80s streamlined production as much as it's big. There aren't many instruments on synchronicity aren't many instruments on war or unforgettable fire. You know, they make a little go a long way. Which is kind of what helps it to work in a stadium, you know, in a way, because stadiums notoriously are very big and very echoey. So you you almost have to do away with the subtleties in the music sometimes to make it work in that context. And I think that's what bands like U2 understood uh, and also Simple Minds kind of w- went in that direction too. They began to take away a lot of the quirks from their music to to some degree of success, I think. You know, I, I, I do like some of Simple Minds' more stadium-orientated records, but certainly they, they kind of erased some of the quirks in an attempt to make the music more direct, to make it more simple, to make it work in the context of a stadium. And I do think Live Aid was a, a kind of a, a watershed moment for that because the bands that really came out covered in glory from Live Aid were the bands that could pull it off in a stadium. Mm. Queen, U2. um, And and that Live Aid very much became the defining, I think, no coincidence that it occurs exactly in the middle of the 80s. I think it it became the defining moment of the 80s. I mean, mean, obviously, Section 25 just didn't make the impact that Freddie Mercury (laughs) did. Section Section 25 and the Duritti column uh, and Eilis and Gaza, for some reason, didn't somehow manage to make the transition to to stadium rock. Yeah, funny that. Which is a great pity. 
we're, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about some of those bands. I think we're going to we're going to leave it here, Tim, for episode one um, of 1983. Another f- extraordinary year, fantastic year, where we we just cannot possibly talk about everything in a single episode. So we still have a few categories to do um, in in part two, uh, including some other great records. But for now, I think we'll leave it. Uh, 1983 part one. Please join us for episode two of 1983 if you've enjoyed this one. And by the way, if you have enjoyed this one, please do go and leave us a good review uh, on whichever podcast platform you use. Yeah, and, and you will have people saying, I listened to Lewis. It was nothing like they said it was. But it is exactly like we said it is. That's I think I think we've managed to sum that album up pretty. Sometimes I do worry. Actually, I have to be. Honest, sometimes I worry if we've really done justice justice in terms of describing a record. But I think in the case of Lewis, I think we were spot on. Do you I think, think I do? I think we were in the case of the future now. No matter what Peter Hamill thinks. Absolutely, I think we should get him on to defend himself. How <laughs> dare he disagree? How dare he disagree with our with our particular interpretation of his own record and his own lyrics? He has no rights. How dare you, Peter? Anyway, so that we'll leave it there, Tim. And um, so for now, goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Goodbye. <laughs>